Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. Hi, I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. This is episode four, Swedish Neolithic Cultures. Very exciting. Yes, it is. And we're going to be adding on to what we were talking about last week a little bit more in depth about all the different people who were living in Sweden and bits and pieces like that. This is a bit of decoration on the structure that we established in the previous episode. I guess you could say this is our first episode that's not really a special episode, but more of an in-depth deep dive. So uh, it's going to be fun. But should we kick off with a Swedish phrase of the week first? I think we should, because uh, this actually came up earlier this week when we were doing research. I mentioned it to you because I wasn't really sure what this one meant. It's less of an expression and more of just a word. And the word is handfallen. So that's sort of two words, hand and fall. Yeah, that's literally what it means. Handfallen or with fallen hands. And how would you use that in a phrase? Well, it means stunned or confused. I looked up the official definition and the dictionary said surprised and confused to such an extent that you are unsure how to react. Okay, so someone unexpectedly resigned from the government. Would you say I am or was handfallen that blah blah resigned? Yeah, or more like you're faced with a problem that you don't really know how to deal with. Okay, so in like the recent storms that we've been having in the UK recently, Kiara and Dennis, uh, the most recent ones, if something happened to your house and it was a bit of a disaster, then you'd be handfallen. Yeah, exactly. You'd stand there with fallen hands, not knowing what to do. This is one example of how many Swedish phrases are very literal in how you understand them. It is what it says. Yeah, it does what it says on the tin. <laughs> Indeed. But we are definitely not handfallna now. We are ready to start the episode. And last week we started talking about the Neolithic period and how early farming and concepts of ownership were introduced over a really long period of time. We're going to be covering the same period again this time, backtracking a bit to look a little bit more in detail at the various cultures at the time, because there wasn't just one Swedish or even Northern European culture at this point, uh, just like today. Yes, because whilst we mentioned that some parts of Sweden started farming but other areas didn't, it is actually because they are seen as being various different cultures which started and ended at different sections in the Neolithic period. That's because whilst the Neolithic period in Sweden is everything from around 4200 BCE to 1800 BCE, so that's up until the Bronze Age starts, there are more distinctions that can be relatively easily made. Another handy thing about this period, and in fact from now on in the podcast, is that it was around 4500 BCE that Sweden took its present shape geographically, more or less at this point. So you can start looking at modern day maps for at least the shape of the geography, because of course the political boundaries of countries and regions will continue to change pretty much up until the present day. Well, at least that's something that's ticked off. Create a landmass of which some of which will be Sweden. <laughs> yeah, true. But let's start with the Neolithic period, shall we? Uh, most historians and timelines do split it up into early, middle and late Neolithic. But uh, today we're going to be talking about it as one big old block. Why is that? 
Well, that's because the Swedish Neolithic period is easier to split up by the three different types of cultures that were present at the time, rather than the time periods and uh, when these groups came to prominence. So in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about all three cultures, compare them to the, find out their similarities and differences, and find out what was so special about them. Exciting! So where to begin? Well, where to begin indeed. Last week we alluded to the fact that there were different types of patterns and styles in Sweden during this period. Some people liked to farm and some liked to stick to hunting, gathering and fishing. All the things that had served them so well up until that point. Just that now they did it with a bit more technology and variety in animal life when compared to the Paleolithic and the Mesolithic people from before. I certainly remember the better variety of food, as I am always interested in what people ate. Yeah, so they got a lot more food, a lot better food, but it didn't really change the day-to-day -day living. There's a lot of debate about where and how the cultures we're going to be talking about soon developed, and how or if they came up with their inventions and uh, new cultural things themselves, or took them from other people. They also appeared at different points, because again, this period is so long and varied, it's hard to create a flowing narrative per se. So I think we should just start by introducing them all. Yes, please, go ahead. Okay, we have the funnel cup, or the funnel beakers culture, the pitted ware culture, and the boat or battle axe culture. <laughs> Don't worry, they have equally weird names in Swedish, probably in all languages, so English isn't getting the short end of the straw here. There is a reason, though, why they are called these slightly funny names. I think, for simplicity's sake, though, we are going to call the third one the battle axe culture, rather than its alternative, the boat axe culture. Also, mainly because it's more fun to call it battle axe. Yeah, although a boat axe culture sounds a bit fun, or just a bit weird, though. Uh, perhaps more weird than the other three. Yeah, true. So the first culture, the funnel beakers, sometimes also called just the beakers, they dominated south and central Sweden, as always, and these were the guys who were also in Denmark and east and Norway. These guys were mainly who we started talking about at the start of the episode last week, because they began the whole farming thing. Hooray, thank you, farming revolution. The pitted ware culture came a little bit after the funnel beakers and was most common in parts of the south and the western and eastern coastal areas, along with being around the Lake Melran region, which is just inland from Stockholm, basically, by the east coast. They seem to have shunned the farming developments of the funnel beakers, preferring the coastal living and surviving off the fishing and hunter-gatherer tactics of yesteryear. We also touched on the third and last culture last week when we spoke of developments in the Neolithic period. The battle axe culture are the people responsible for a lot of those changes. There is evidence they first appeared in Northern Europe in the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE, so that's 2500 BCE-ish. They were apparently strikingly different from the older groups. They invaded, or simply came to live, from the Ural Mountains and Ukraine. So you guessed it, 
You've heard about them before. It's the Yamnayas. Yes, the Yamnayas. Uh, I hope everybody remembers them from last week and all their genetic evidence and all that kind of stuff that we looked into. But uh, I think it's now time to look into these cultures a bit individually and in some more detail. Yes. So let's start with the funnel beakers. These guys started everything off, kicking off the Neolithic age in around 4300 BCE. The funnel beaker culture is named for its characteristic ceramics with funnel-shaped tops, a lot of which were found in graves, which we will talk about later on in the episode. The funnel beaker culture was a culture in north-central Europe. It developed as a merger of local Neolithic cultures around modern-day Poland, parts of Germany and Denmark, and that ever-present south of Sweden. We'll mainly be talking about what can be found in Sweden, but as always, there is no Sweden just yet, so we need to look at what the culture is doing in the general area as well. The funnel beakers introduced farming and husbandry as a major source of food, different to the pottery-using hunter-gatherers who stayed doing their thing north of the funnel beakers areas in northern Scandinavia, which is basically anything more than halfway up Sweden. With the exception of some random inland locations, the settlements are located near those of the previous cultures who lived mainly on the coast. It was characterised by single-family houses, roughly the size of a modern-day double garage, should we say. The culture was dominated by animal husbandry of sheep, cattle, pigs and goats, but there was also hunting and fishing to add to the land animals they had domesticated. Uh, They might as well keep up their expertise in that area too. One amazing find assigned to the funnel beaker culture is the bronosize, bronchish, bronchishishish. I have no idea how that's pronounced. Bronosh. Bronchitschke. It's a Polish word, I'm terribly sorry. Bronoszyszy pot from Poland. Please let us know what the correct pronunciation of that word is in Polish. I'm sorry. This pot from Poland shows the oldest known depiction of a wagon, presumably drawn by aurochs, whose remains were found with the pot. It was dated by the radiocarbon method to 3500 to... 3350 BCE. Yeah, that's a long time ago. And uh, now I'm going to go on a bit of an auroch tangent, as aurochs are something I really wish <laughs> were still around today. Yeah, really? Yeah, well, these were a wild species of European ox, but the last ones died out in a Polish forest in the middle of the 1620s, which is a massive shame. And uh, for this episode, I've actually spent a bit of time reading The History of the European Aurochs, a PhD thesis by Elizabeth Wright at the University of Sheffield from a few years ago. It was actually really fun to read. The auroch is generally agreed to be the wild ancestor of domestic cattle, and certainly bigger than our cattle today. The northernmost limits of where the aurochs sort of lived in Sweden seems to have been reached during the early Mesolithic period. There have been fossil specimens at the counties of Östergötland, Västergötland and a Mesolithic site at Hornborgen, a lake in Västergötland. So we're talking about south central Sweden basically. Now here's a relatively long quote but it's quite fun too so I'm going to read it all out. 
It is likely that a combination of reasons contributed to the extinction of the aurochs, but the general scarcity of auroch finds across much of Europe during the Neolithic period do not suggest that they were being hunted in very large numbers prior to extinction. For this reason, the destruction of habitat may have been a more prominent factor. In addition, in some areas such as Scandinavia, extinction may have also been aided by rising sea levels which fragmented populations. By the Bronze Age, the aurochs were rare in some areas, and it disappeared from southern Scandinavia around 500 BCE, so well before they uh, died out in Poland. And these amazing creatures were common throughout the Mesolithic and Neolithic period in Sweden. Their depiction on the pot from Poland is one of the earliest depictions of farming, and the oldest, as far as we know, depiction of a wagon. So that's showing you that the funnel beakers were already smashing the farming game, having wagons and huge oxen pulling them around, so that's really going to make your life much easier compared to previous generations. What I like about the aurochs is that they sound like they should be something out of Harry Potter and not actually a real thing. Yeah, I don't know really who who named them, uh, but it's a good name. Definitely a great name. But we should go back to the funnel beaker guys. As we've seen, the funnel beakers had mastered how to grow primitive wheat and barley. They grew on small patches that were fast depleted because of all that slashing and burning process that we talked about last week. As a result, the population frequently moved short distances, rotating the fields and building new huts or moving their older ones. This is peak Neolithic farming, but there was also mining, amazingly, in the Malmö region in the south of Sweden. Nearby, a collection of flintstone from the Polish mountains have been found, which was traded into regions lacking the stone, such as the Scandinavian hinterland. Whilst these people weren't one people, they were clearly trading and moving about together, sharing these goods they were working so hard to produce. There's also evidence of some sort of religious or ritual behaviour in their communities. The flint axes and vessels were deposited in streams and lakes near the farmlands, and virtually all of Sweden's 10,000 flint axes that have been found from this culture were probably sacrificed in water. What that was for, we can only really speculate on. Um, if you have any ideas, maybe you should uh, tweet us or something. They're probably uh, culturally or, or religious for some reason. Yeah, tweet us if you have any ideas. One of the crazier things these guys got up to was constructing large cult centers surrounded by fences, earthworks and moats. The largest one is found at Sarup on the island of Fyn, just over the water in modern-day Denmark. The site is over 85,000 square meters and is estimated to have taken 8,000 workdays to build. That is a lot of effort in a culture that still has to work very hard just to produce all of its food, despite the ox to help them with it. Another cult center at Stevje near Lund, back in Skåne, is about 30,000 square meters in size, showing that these Swedes of the time certainly got up to the same thing as the Danes. That's really interesting, the scale of this building. So, yeah, it just shows you how important this was to them to spend all the time and resources in doing it. 
But as time moves on, we'll move on to the pitted wear culture. Or, uh, you know, I'd like to call them the pits for simplicity's sake, but that might be a bit rude. So uh, let's just stick to the pitted wear culture. They seem to have been around for the most time of this period, straddling the end of the funnel beakers and the beginning of the battle axe culture. The pitted wear culture arose around 3500 BCE, and its earliest sites are found in east-central Sweden, where it appears to have replaced the funnel beaker culture eventually. It expanded, and this expansion is accompanied by the disappearance of settlements of the funnel beaker culture throughout large parts of southern Scandinavia. This was because they didn't subscribe to the whole farming and therefore static way of life, and so were able to move around into other areas of the country. Yes, and just like in Mesolithic time, settlements didn't really need to be a thing for the pitted wares. But we still have evidence that they came to occupy the coasts of Denmark, southern Sweden, southern Norway, and various islands in the Baltic Sea, such as Åland, Gotland, and Öland. The pitted ware culture was a hunter-gatherer culture. Despite its Mesolithic-style economy, it's by convention classed as a Neolithic culture since it falls within the period in which farming reached Scandinavia. The pitted ware people were largely maritime hunters, like their forebearers, and were engaged in lively trade with both the agricultural communities of the Scandinavian interior and other hunter-gatherers in the region. There were lively contacts with communities in Finland and the Eastern Baltic. During its formative years, the pitted ware culture also coexisted with the funnel beakers back in Sweden. This is probably the most interesting part of this period, the coexistence between the two groups at this point. Although the two cultures exchange goods with each other, its peoples appear to have widely different identities, and they didn't seem to mix with each other to any notable extent. Throughout its existence of more than 1,000 years, the pitted ware culture remained virtually unchanged. The culture is not for turning. To uh, do a Margaret Thatcher reference, uh, from around 2800 BCE, the pitted ware culture coexisted for some time with the battle axe culture at the end of the period, which succeeded the remnants of the funnel beaker culture in southern Scandinavia. Half a millennium later, the, again, huge time periods. Uh, so in around 2300 BCE, the pitted ware culture had been absorbed by the battle axe culture and they were no more as a separate entity. So they existed with the funnel beakers at the start and the battle axes at the end. The following Nordic Bronze Age represents a fusion of elements from the pitted ware culture and the battle axe culture. Modern Scandinavians, apart from the Sami, still display partial genetic origins from the pitted ware people. Now, what about the pitted ware way of life, if we can call it that? Their temporary dwellings were typically located along the coast, as we mentioned. They usually lived in huts, definitely smaller than the house-style buildings of the funnel beaker culture. The economy of the pitted ware culture was based on fishing, hunting, and gathering of wild plants. The pitted ware sites that have been found contain bones from elk, deer, beaver, seal, porpoise, and pig. Pig bones were found in large quantities on some pitted ware sites, and they come from wild boar rather than the domestic pigs that the funnel beaker people kept and would have eaten. The hunting of seals was also particularly important. 
For this reason, we've read that the pitted ware people have sometimes been called the hardcore sealers or the Inuit of the Baltic. That's a name if I ever heard one. Hardcore sealers. Yeah, so, well, not exactly random, but uh, pretty fun at least. Again, seasonal migration was a feature of life for these people, as with many other hunter-gatherer communities of the Mesolithic period before them. Pitted ware communities in eastern Sweden probably spent most of the year at their main village on the coast, making seasonal forays inland to hunt for boars, pigs and fur-bearing animals, and to engage in exchange with farming communities in the interior. As we mentioned the trade earlier, some of the pitted ware peoples appear to have been specialized hunters who engaged in the trade of animal goods with people throughout the Baltic. They used their skills in hunting to gather materials and goods that other people would have struggled to get themselves. Yeah, and that's of course one way to run an economy, to give or produce something that other people don't already have. One notable feature of the pitted ware culture is the sheer quantity of shards of pottery on its sites, leading to its name. The culture has been named after the typical ornamentation of its pottery. They had horizontal rows of pits pressed into the body, or like, you know, lumps, pressed into the body of the pot before it was fired and finished off, and hence the name. Though some vessels are flat-bottomed, others are round-based or point-based, which would make it easy to stably position it in the soil or on the hearth. In shape and decoration, this ceramic style apparently reflects influences from Finland and other parts of northeastern Europe, so that's more example of knowledge sharing. Yeah, and even more cool are the small animal figurines modelled out of clay as well as bone that have been found. A large number of clay figurines have been found at Jetbölle, at Jumala on the island of Åland, including some which combine seal and human features. I want to see more of that combined seal-human thing. The tools used by the pitted ware people seem to have varied across the country. However, the use of fish hooks, harpoons and nets and sinkers were fairly widespread. Barbed arrowheads made from blades of flintstone are abundant on Scandinavia's west coast and were probably used in the hunting of marine mammals, like those poor seals. From seals, we head on to the culture with the coolest name, the battle axe culture. They merged in the south of the Scandinavian peninsula around 2800 BCE. It was probably an offshoot of the corded ware culture, a separate European culture of the time, which was itself largely an offshoot of the Yamnaya culture. Modern genetic studies show that its emergence was accompanied by large-scale migrations and genetic displacement. The battleaxe culture is thought to have been responsible for spreading Indo-European languages and other elements of Indo-European culture to the region. It coexisted for quite a time with the hunter-gatherer pitted ware culture, which it eventually absorbed and then became the Nordic Bronze Age. The concentration of the battle axe culture was in Skåne, but sites have been found throughout the coastal areas of southern Scandinavia and southwest Finland, so they were definitely not limiting themselves to just living in Skåne. The immediate coastline was, however, occupied by the pitted ware culture. So if you think of it a bit like a pizza, 
The centre is the battle axe and the crust is the pitted ware culture. I hope it's a stuffed crust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hope that analogy makes some sense. Uh, either way, this distinction isn't too important as just about 500 years later, by 2300 BCE, the battle axe culture had absorbed the pitted ware culture. It's great talking about these time differences where you say just 500 years later. <laughs> it's like, that goes so quickly. Um, but yeah, by this point, they're all gone and the battle axe culture is the last culture standing. Throughout its existence, the battle axe culture appears to have expanded into coastal Norway and this is accompanied by some dramatic cultural changes. There have been sites reported of the battle axe culture inside the Norwegian Arctic Circle in the Lofoten Islands and also as far north as the present-day city of Trondheim which is so far away from Skjorna. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Skjorna anymore, is what they would have said when they got to Tromsø. <laughs> yeah, definitely, when they eventually got there, so far away. The Battleites culture is mostly known for its burials, where we get a lot of information about them from, and around 250 Battleites burials have been found in Sweden. But as promised, more on that in a bit. The flint axes the battle axe culture produced, along with the pitted ware culture, can help us trace a common origin in southwest Skåne and Denmark. A few settlements of the battle axe culture have been uncovered there. Most of them are located inland, but some are located in coastal areas, where they would have occupied them after the pitted ware people were there. Sadly, less than a hundred settlements are known and their remains are few and far between as they are located on continuously used and rotated farmland and have consequently been ploughed away. Maybe by those pesky aurochs. <laughs> Don't blame the aurochs, it's not their fault. Okay, blame the people who use the aurochs to plough them away then. Archaeological remains of southern Sweden reveal close spatial relationships between houses and graves. This suggests that the farm was the centre of social and economic activity in the battle axe culture. They weren't travelling to another location to bury their dead in a cultural setting. The battle axe culture was based on the same agricultural practices as previous funnel beaker culture, but with less focus on wheat and more on animals. The battle axe culture appears to have emphasized cattle herding, which explains the apparent quasi-mobile nature of the culture and the fact that less settlements are being found, as that requires less permanence than farming wheat and grains. So they're actually mixing both cultures here. They also appear to have engaged in trade with populations in the north, exchanging animal goods for material goods. Moving on to these physical remains and looking at this trade, you can see that battle axe pottery has also been found frequently in pitted ware settlements. Some settlements even display fusions of the pottery styles of the battle axe culture and the pitted ware culture. The relationship between these two cultures is controversial and not particularly well understood. Einar Ustmo, a Norwegian archaeologist, emphasizes that the Atlantic and North Sea coastal regions of Scandinavia and the wider Baltic areas were united by a vigorous maritime economy, all working together permitting a far wider geographical spread and a closer cultural unity than the interior continental cultures could attain. He points to the widely found rock carvings associated to this era, which display thousands of ships that have been drawn on the rocks. 
To seafaring cultures like this one, the sea was certainly more of a highway or a road than a divider. There was also a cultural difference between the battle axes and those who came before. The social system of the battle axe culture was markedly different from that of the funnel beaker culture. This is marked by the fact that the funnel beaker culture had collective megalithic graves with a great deal of sacrifices in the graves. But the battle axe culture has individual graves with individual sacrifices. Individualism appears to have played a much more prominent part in their culture than that of their predecessors. This really builds on what we were talking about last week, about ownership and the model of society once it becomes a farming, property-based economy. You get a rise of more individualized thinking. So to summarize, overall we can see that the cultures were similar, but different, with the battle axes perhaps combining the best of both worlds. The funnel beakers came first and started farming, utilizing some of the new techniques available to them. The pitted wares then became a thing, starting their retro return to hunter-gathering before the battle axes took over and taking all the best bits from them all and turning them into the victorious Neolithic period winners. Yeah, hurrah, they got out on top in the end. But you would expect so with a name like that. If you called battle axe, you can't lose. But as we mentioned earlier, one of the biggest differences was how they liked to bury their dead. So I think we should get into that now. Yes, we did promise you some grave talk, so uh, here we go. It was during the Neolithic period that some of the cultures began building the oldest monumental or megalithic graves in Sweden. A megalith is a large stone that's been used to construct a structure or monument either alone as one big giant stone or together with other large stones. Megalithic graves are therefore graves that use these giant stone techniques. Yeah, so the oldest megalithic graves in Sweden were relatively simple dolmen graves, another word for those graves that looked a bit like a loaf of bread, uh, the ones we talked about from last week. These were the domain of the funnel beakers. These tombs were built in a quite a short space of time, around 3300 to 3000 BCE. This was right in the middle of the funnel beaker culture, and they loved these things. The graves were based on several large, vertically placed stones to help form a small chamber or opening where you would then put the body. Sometimes the dolmen graves were actually left exposed, so you just saw the stone out in the open, a ceiling slab perhaps being the most impressive part of it. Yeah, if you just stick Swedish dolmen graves into a search engine, you can see a lot of pictures of them. There's a really impressive article in the Journal of Archaeological Science by Carl Johan Frögren, where he goes into a lot of this in great detail. He even looks at the teeth of cows and pigs and traces their various isotopes and genetic details to find where they were raised and where they ended up being found in the archaeological record. He's also got a really handy map which shows you that the dolmen graves are really concentrated on the west coast in what's now Bohuslän County and around the coast in Skorna in the south, but also actually really quite far inland at a place called Falbygden. Interestingly, he also says that based on over 300 different tests using carbon-14 dating that 
The building of megalithic tombs seems to be virtually simultaneous over a large area, including northern Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and even southern Norway. So it shows you it's really spread out. Yeah, and actually, the rest of the article is really interesting as it talks about how the Neolithic economy was run. He says that if you look at the evidence of isotopes, pollen, and animal bone refuse, you can see that the Middle Neolithic economy in Falbygden is almost identical to the one on the coast. The funnel beakers spread across the countryside with the same method of living. They were living off domestic crops and animals for their food. And that main site in Falbygden has a lot of evidence to show that it was not just a locally based self-sustaining economy during the Middle Neolithic period, but rather was integrated in a much larger economic and social system. The cattle were coming from elsewhere in many of the cases. In fact, he says that the mobility of cattle is in fact much higher than that of humans, for which the frequency of non-local individuals is about 25%, and not only prestige items and humans were circulating, but also basic components of subsistence. I know Chris really could go on another cattle teeth tangent, but overall, I think we should leave it there. Go find the article if you want to read more about it. It's called A Complex Neolithic Economy, Isotope Evidence for the Circulation of Cattle and Sheep in the Funnel Beaker Culture of Western Sweden. Now that's the kind of level of depth I want <laughs> in my article titles. It shows you exactly what it's going to uh, talk about, even if you do need to work it out a little bit. Yeah, that's symptomatic of academic writing in general, I think. But back to the graves themselves. The dolmen grave at Hoving in the parish of Rovlunda on Österlen on the Swedish south coast is one of the most famous dolmen graves in the country. This is what's known as a long dolmen, with a rectangular grave chamber and an edge chain of stones. Of the 100 dolmen graves that have been found in Sweden, 44 of them have been found in Skåne in the south, and another 44 in Bohuslän on the west coast. He yeah, has an equal split there. The more recent passage graves from around 3000 BCE were larger and more complex, involving building an elongated chamber of vertical stones and ceiling slabs. The grave at Barsebeck, northwest of Lund, is a particularly important example of this. Both types, the passage graves and dolmen graves, of which there are around 530 in total, were usually covered with earth to form mounds, but as we said, some of them were actually left open and exposed, or have become exposed over time. The remains of the dead were usually deposited alongside a few articles of everyday life, such as a weapon or domestic pots and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Megalithic graves were also used more than once, and probably also served as cult sites. Given the extent of effort and resource and time to make them, they are believed to be the graves of an elite in society, which is becoming more stratified due to the ownership issue we mentioned last week. The graves seem to be clustered around the southwest, and they could potentially be the graves of powerful local farmers, family members, or even some sort of chieftain. 
Now, very importantly, the pitted ware people were typically buried in flat graves. Unlike the funnel beakers, they did not have megalithic graves. Pitted ware burials are also distinguished from funnel beaker burials through their use of red okra. So you can see that the pitted wares were less interested in building huge, expensive stone graves. Could this be because they have less time on their hands, because they need to forage and hunt for survival, or just because they weren't stationary for as long, so there wasn't the point to have a grave as they would be moving on to another spot? Uh, who knows? Maybe a bit of both. So we can see how it's possible to use the graves to try and work out how the society functioned. Through graves, people have suggested that the social system of the battle axe culture was also markedly different from that of the funnel beaker culture. In the battle axe culture, the dead were normally put in a single flat grave. They were usually dug in a north to south angle, and there's actually a lot of research into how they were dug at specific angles in the different cultures. Men were placed on their left, whilst women were placed on their right. The grave goods seem to have been quite common too. Axes of flint are found in both male and female burials, for example. Battle axes are placed with the men and are put close to the head. These battle axes appear to have been status symbols, as it's from them that the culture is named. Ceramics were also quite common grave goods in the battle axe culture. Other things include a wide array of arrowheads, weapons made out of antler, that's cool, as well as amber beads and polished flint axes and chisels. Other remains from burials include red deer, sheep and goat. Oh, what a party in those graves. Yeah, it's clearly the place to be is in the afterlife. Yeah, a new find came in 1993 when archaeologists excavated in a place called Turinge in Södermanland in south-central Sweden. They found pots and axes, all very typical of the battle axe culture, but more interestingly, there were also the cremated remains of at least six people. And this is the earliest sign of cremation in Scandinavia, another first for the Neolithic age. Yeah, they're creating their checklist and then checking it twice, ticking everything off as they go. Invent cremation, check. Probably invent the checklist first, check. <laughs> Step one, create your list, check. <laughs> what do you think was invented first, writing or the checklist? Because how do you write, invent writing on a checklist if you don't know how to write? Well, maybe it's a sort of a mental checklist. <laughs> Who invented the checklist? Uh, we apologise for another tangent there. Yeah, have third tangent, check. <laughs> But yes, that's the burials done, and it's uh, now time for a short feature that we thought we'd uh, bring in now whilst we're like talking about all these different cultures. And we're going to have a few minutes talking about what was going on the rest of the world with some famous or perhaps overlooked examples to show what some non-Swedes were getting up to. Uh, we can't promise that this will happen very often, uh, probably not, but it's uh, good to get a bit of perspective from what's happening elsewhere. Yeah, perhaps we should call this the neighbours, the rest of the world section. Uh, we haven't got a good name for it yet, or like Chris said, even know if it will return as a thing. The idea for now is to give you an idea of where we are in history and help place these events in your mind. So what was going on in the rest of the world? 
The passage graves and dolmen we have talked about were actually found more in Denmark than anywhere else in Western Europe. The Danes loved them. They loved them so much, they spread them around to the coastal Swedish areas. This is where we think they came from most immediately. And in Denmark, a single passage grave can contain up to a hundred skeletons, which is pretty grim. Grim, but great for the archaeologists who then only have to find one site and then they've got a hundred bodies. Uh, and now for one of my favourites, smack bang in the middle of this period, we have the Gigantia temples on Malta and Gozo. Uh, if you look for the boot of Italy that's kicking the ball of Sicily, uh, Malta is the very tiny country of small three islands just below that. And in short, Malta had a temple phase. Uh, we all go through a temple phase at some point in life, don't we? Uh, we all remember the temple phase. Malta's temple phase occurred during the same time as Sweden's Neolithic period. The temple phase itself, like a lot of these larger time periods, was split up into various phases. One being the Gigantia phase, the Maltese word for gigantic, perhaps uh, not so surprisingly, once you look at the temples or just the spelling of the word. It's named after the big site in Gozo, one of the big islands in Malta, where one such example of these crazy temples exist. Perhaps the most famous one, though, is the Hajaim temple complex on Malta itself. The Gigantia temples are the earliest examples of the megalithic temples of Malta, and are older than the pyramids of Egypt, so they're pretty old. Their makers erected the two Hajaim Gigantia temples during the Neolithic period, so 3600 to 2500 BCE. And it's a huge time range, but it makes these temples more than 5500 years old, and the world's second oldest religious structures after Gobliki Tepe in present-day Turkey, or however you would say that. Now, when I was living in Malta a few years ago, the Maltese loved telling me, as a British person, that the temples were potentially at least a thousand years older than Stonehenge. Yeah, these temples are huge, and you can do an entire podcast just on them. There's so much to talk about with them, with the same kind of questions as we have for Stonehenge. Why did they build them? Why does it align with the sun? Were only the elite allowed to go there? But do Google them. It's spelled Hagar Quim, H-A-G-A-R Q-I-M. So Google them for more information and pictures. And uh, fun fact, I took then Prince Charles, now King Charles, on a trip around them. Yeah, but closer to home for a British person, Stonehenge was also built uh, around the same sort of time in the UK, but not older than those in Malta. In case you don't know, Stonehenge is a ring of standing stones, each around 4 meters or high and 2 meters wide. They weigh around 25 tons each, so they're quite big. The stones are set inside a load of earthwork in the middle of a huge complex of Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments in southern England. 
I remember learning loads about this during A-level archaeology, what you uh, study in high school, that would it be for Americans, and we went there on a trip. Again, there are so many questions about Stonehenge, uh, when one fact just leads you to 15 more questions. Archaeologists believe it was constructed from 3000 BCE to 2000 BCE. The banks and ditches there are the earliest part of the site, and radiocarbon dating tells us that the first of the large blue stones there were put in place between about 2400 and 2200 BCE, although they might have been there much earlier. It's, it's really hard to tell with some of these things. Heading to perhaps the most famous of the period, we reach the earliest known Egyptian pyramids that are found at Saqqara, which is near Memphis. The earliest one of the pyramids of Djosa. Again, if you know how that is pronounced, then let me know, because I'm not sure. I think it's Djosa. I think this uh, could be a recurring feature of the rest of the world section is uh, asking our listeners for pronunciation advice. Yeah, I know how to pronounce the Swedish sites that we're talking about. So let's exchange a bit of knowledge with each other. But back to the pyramids. This pyramid is thought to be the world's oldest monumental structure made out of dressed masonry. And it's quite old, as it's thought to be from about 2630 BCE to 2610 BCE. When using these examples to look back at what is happening in Sweden, there is nothing at all of this sort of scale, nowhere near it yet in Sweden. When you're looking at the stone circles in Sweden, which are even slightly comparable to Stonehenge, some of the most famous ones are from 500 BC to 500 AD, so much, much later. And there are no huge temple complexes either, and the megalithic graves are more lithic than mega, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they are mega interesting. And this doesn't mean it wasn't an achievement for those building large complexes in Denmark and Skorna. you just got to think about all the rubbish weather they had to put up with when making these things. It was ever so slightly warmer and nicer in Malta and Egypt, that's for sure. Although I guess that would make it harder to do heavy lifting. So yeah. You never know. But overall, I think uh, that's probably us done for this week. We spent a lot of time looking at the three main Neolithic cultures, the funnel beakers, pitted ware, and battle axe cultures. Yes, and we looked at all manner of crazy artifacts and graves that came along with them to help us understand why they were different from each other. Next week, we'll see how the battle axe culture kickstarted the change into the Bronze Age and how Sweden gets to grips with its first metals. As always, do give us a review wherever you find us, uh, iTunes or Spotify or even uh, Audible these days. We're also now on Pocket Casts, which I've learned is a thing. Um, there's a Stitcher and loads of places, really. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Just search a Flatpak History of Sweden or send us an email on flatpakhistorysweden at gmail.com. Please do let people know where to find us if you think they might be interested as well. Yeah, exactly. And you can also check out our website, www.aflatpakhistoryofsweden.com. Uh, it'd just be great to hear from any of you. Yeah, but that's all for now. It's a goodbye from us. See you next time. Hey, door.
They weigh around 25,000 tons each. <laughs> no way. 25,000 tons. makes no sense. <laughs> the size I don't of even, Earth. I don't even know what is 25,000 tons in weight. Like a ship or... I don't know. 400 elephants. 